Well, welcome to New Hope Chapel Sunday morning praise and worship service. I say that mostly for those of you who are attending us online. You know that my sermon this morning, the title is Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back. Well, my text is the book of Jude, verses 14 and 15. You have the handout, it gives you the title, the text, and the outline are given to you for easy reference. I understand it's on both sides of the outline. So read with me as I look at my text, 14, beginning with verse 14. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints, verse 15, to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Amen? We don't have to listen to the news very long before we realize that it's all being consumed by the events in Europe. And you know, in these times, when the nuclear option is placed on the table in front of the world by Russia, it occurred to me that it might just be a good time for the rapture. And to be followed as God measures time by the second coming. And so this morning, dear Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my Lord, my strength, and my Redeemer. Amen. You know, my sermon is really not going to be anything like the movie with the same title. It's different in two very distinct ways. I'm not going to be talking about Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, Princess Leia, Darth Vader, Chewbacca, Yoda, R2-D2. And I was told this morning that I missed the robot See, you guys know his name. I assume it was a he. It was intelligent. (laughs) That's why I get in trouble with some of the things that I say. I'm going to be talking about the real empire. I'm going to be talking about the kingdom of God and, and the real emperor whose name is Jesus. You know, furthermore, in the movie, The Empire Strikes Back, the hero Han Solo is left carbon frozen in need of being rescued. But when this umpire strikes back, the world will have struck out and the hero will be in no need of rescue. So the next time Jesus comes, which will be the last time he will come, he will not come to a cradle, he will come to a throne. He will not die in a tree. He will sit on a throne. And he will not stand before Pilate and the Sanhedrin. He will, it would be that Sanhedrin and Pilate that will stand before him. He will not be rejected by the nation of Israel. He will be received by the nation of Israel. And all Israel will be saved. <clears throat> you know, the Apostle Jude, quoting an Old Testament preacher named Enoch, reveals about the time when the empire strikes back and Jesus comes again. 
And so first in your outline, consider the first preacher of the second coming. You know, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jude reveals something to us that we would otherwise not know but for his words. He tells us that the first man ever to predict the second coming of Jesus was Enoch. And again, verse 14 states, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes. You know, the Bible says very little about Enoch, but when it does speak, it says a great deal. And we only read about Enoch three times in the Bible, once in Genesis, once in Hebrews, and here in the book of Jude. Enoch had a personal walk with God. And that's reported in Genesis 5.22, which simply says, Enoch walked with God. And the book of Hebrew tells us that Enoch had a pleasing worship of God. Hebrews 11.5 tells us, by faith, Enoch was raptured, so he did not see death, and was not found because God had raptured him. For before his rapture, he had this testimony, that he pleased God. Then here in the book of Jude, we are told that Enoch gave a powerful witness for God. Enoch was not a matchless patriarch like Abraham. He was not a majestic prophet like Isaiah. He was not a magnetic personality like Moses. And he was not a master politician like Joseph. But he was a mighty preacher of the second coming of Jesus Christ. His very name, Enoch, means dedicated. Enoch walked with God, and he got a word from God, and he gave a witness for God that Jesus is coming again. You know, I find it amazing that Enoch prophesied the second coming of Jesus Christ and never, ever saw the first coming of Jesus. And I don't believe it was accidental or coincidental that Enoch was the first preacher of the second coming. He should have been, because he did not die. He was raptured. Enoch did not walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He flew over it. Genesis 5.24 reveals that Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Enoch represents the last Christian generation that is going to be delivered from death. You could say in one sense that he was a one-message prophet. All he preached about was the second coming of Jesus Christ. That was his whole message. And you say, how simple. Well, if you think about it, prophecy is simple. Did you know that I can tell you our future in three propositions? They're found in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. If you would like God's outline for the future in broad brush fashion, here it is. First, the return of the Savior. Verse 16 states, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. Second, the resurrection of the saved. Verse 16b, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And third, the rapture of the saints. 
Verse 17 states, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now, I I don't know if Enoch understood the second part of the prophecy or the third part, but he certainly understood the first part, that Jesus is coming again. And we better listen to Enoch, not because just of who he was, but because of when he lived. Now, I know that he lived thousands of years ago, but the day in which he lived was not too different from the day in which we are living Enoch lived in the days of Noah before the flood. And Jesus said that those days were a picture of the last days and what they would be like. In Matthew 24, 37, Jesus said, But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. Enoch was not only a prophet for his day, he was a prophet for our day. Because there were basically three characteristics that marked his day, and they mark our day as well. First in your outline, his day was marked by disobedience. Genesis 6.11 says of those days, the earth also was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. Violence is a hallmark of the day in which we live. The police are outmanned. They are outgunned. Just this past year, two bank robbers botched a robbery in California, came out of that bank with, with, four, with AK-47s blazing, and they were covered with body armor from the top of their neck to the bottom of their feet. And the 9mm bullets fired by the police officers were bouncing off of them like BBs. It took over an hour. Seven wounded policemen and three wounded civilians before these men were finally shot and killed. And just last summer, there was a fight at Madison Square Garden, and a boxing match broke out. If a verdict doesn't go a certain way today, there is violence. If a team wins a championship in a certain sport in many cities, there is violence. It is a day of disobedience. Second, it is also an age of disbelief. Genesis 6-5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Hebrew word for intent here literally means to make something as a potter would fashion a vessel from clay. Deliberate. In other words, we're not just talking about naughty daydreaming. We're talking about how people carefully crafted ungodly philosophies and ideologies and then tried to squeeze the world into their ungodly mode of thinking. So today, if you're not pro-choice, you are a narrow-minded chauvinist. If you're not pro-homosexuality, you are homophobic. If you're not pro-feminism, you are politically incorrect. 
If you're not pro-multiculturalism, you are an intolerant bigot, a racist. And third, it was an age of disregard. Genesis 6, 3 reveals that the Lord said this, My spirit shall not strive with men forever. So even in those terrible days, mankind was being given a fair warning by the Holy Spirit of God through the preaching of men like Noah and Enoch. The Spirit of God was trying to convince and convict and convert, but they simply did not care. Jesus said they were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. Life went on. And when it comes to spiritual matters, the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, even the wrath of God, there was apathy everywhere. And there's a great lesson we can learn today about that day and from that day and age. And we can learn some things about us. Whenever a nation falls into spiritual apathy, they will fall into social apathy. When people get to the point where they do not care about the coming of the Savior, they won't care about the character of the president. Second in your outline, consider the factual promise of the second coming. Enoch's message was this, verse 14. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. In the Greek language, the verb, the verb comes is in the past tense. What it literally is saying, behold, the Lord came with 10,000 of his saints. In the Greek language, that is called a prophetic past. Oftentimes, the Greeks would state a future event in a past tense to show that something was guaranteed to happen. You see, in God's mind, the second coming of Jesus is a done deal. Revelation 13.8 tells us that Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now think about that. Before the world ever saw a cross, God saw Calvary. Jesus was crucified in the mind of God before he was ever crucified and in the hands of men. Listen. God did something unique for Enoch thousands of years ago. He drew back the curtains of time, gave Enoch a front row seat in the theater of prophecy and allowed him a sneak preview of coming attractions. He said, Enoch, I want you to preach what is going to happen but has not yet happened, which the world believes will not happen. Preach as though it had already happened. And may I say to you that there are two things that neither time, money, power, or government can change. First, what has already happened in the past. And second, what God says is going to happen in the future. In fact, as strange as it may sound, you can be more sure today of what God says will happen tomorrow than you can be of what did happen yesterday. Now the question may be raised. Well, if he's coming is so sure, where is he? 
Why hasn't he come? Well, the first preacher, Enoch, of the second coming gives us a clue. If you remember, Enoch begot Methuselah. Now, the name Methuselah is very, very fascinating. It literally means, when he is dead, it shall come. What was the it? The it was the flood. Methuselah was God's timer. When he died, God's judgment was going to come. So when Methuselah died, the flood did come. And the reason that is also interesting is because Methuselah was the oldest man who ever lived, having lived 969 years. Why? Why was he the oldest man who ever lived? Because he represented the patience and the mercy of God. God gave this world almost one millennia to repent and to get right with him before he sent his judgment, the flood. You see, the second coming of Jesus is a promise. It is a fact that as far as God is concerned, is already done. 2 Peter 3.9 reminds us, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If you get a chance to visit Washington, D.C., and if you get a chance, go to the United States Capitol and make sure you enter the dome. Inscribed on the inside of the dome are these words, one God, one law, one element, and one divine far-off event toward which all creation moves. Our founding fathers were convinced Jesus is coming again, and you had better as well. Third in your outline, consider the fearful prospect of the second coming. You know, Enoch goes on to prophesy something else about the second coming, and that is one of the major reasons for it. Verse 15 tells us, that it is to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Good is going to triumph over evil. Right is going to triumph over wrong. Truth is going to triumph over error. Light is going to triumph over darkness. It's an interesting thing that the first prophecy ever given through a man concerned the second coming of Jesus in judgment. It is also interesting that the last prophecy in the Bible also concerns the second coming of Jesus in judgment. Because after warning the world never to add or to take away from the word of God, Jesus said, surely I am coming quickly. You see, the second coming of Jesus not only means joy to the saint, it means judgment for the sinner. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, the time is coming 
When the Lord Jesus is revealed from the heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. In other words, when the Lord returns, the saints will be purified, the sinners will be horrified, and Jesus will be glorified. Amen. And a Jew specifically says, that Jesus is coming back to execute judgment and convict all who are ungodly. The word convict is a legal term used in the courtroom. It speaks of a just verdict that is reached and a just sentence that is passed. Every guilty sinner will be confronted, convicted, and condemned without argument. You see, for the ungodly, Jesus is both the prosecuting attorney and the presiding judge. And at this trial, there will be a judge with no jury. There will be a prosecutor with no defense. There will be a sentence with no appeal. You won't hear anybody saying in this courtroom, as in the O.J. Simpson trial, if the glove don't fit, you must acquit. Instead, you will only hear, if you don't know him, Better yet, if he doesn't know you, you are condemned. You know, the famous comedian, some of you may not know him because you're too young. I feel bad for those of you that do remember him. W.C. Fields. He was an agnostic all of his life. And he was close to death. And one of his friends came to visit him in the hospital. When he walked into the room, Fields was there reading a Bible. And his friend said, why, W.C., are you getting religion? Fields replied, no, I'm just looking for loopholes. Well, in the day of judgment, there will be no loopholes. The ungodly will be convicted in three ways. They will be convicted for their ungodly works, because Jude says he will convict all who are ungodly, among them all, for their ungodly deeds. Then they will be convicted of their ungodly ways which they have committed in an ungodly manner. And finally, they will be convicted of their ungodly words which they have committed. So finally, all the harsh things, as I say, will be included. In other words, the ungodly will be convicted for what they did, for what they thought, and for what they said. Now, I want you to keep in mind, just as an aside, that Jude is also talking about apostates. Those who knew the right way appeared to walk the right way and then willingly turned around and went the wrong way. They left the body of Christ. I tell you, the harshest judgment and the hottest part of hell is reserved for apostates. Listen to this dire warning in 1 Peter 2, 20 and 21, which states... For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered.
to them. It's better never to have known the truth than to know it and then turn away from it. You know, one of the strangest stories that I've ever read is about, is about a man named Robert Brishin, Brishin. He had spent 12 years on death row. His crime? He asked a man by the name of Stubbs to loan him $400. The man refused. One, man, one month later, Brishin came to his house and shot his 59-year-old wife in the face with a rifle, and then went looking for Mr. Stubbs, who had a revolver. Stubbs wounded Brasheen in the shoulder, and police followed the trail of blood, caught him, and he eventually was sentenced to die. That part of the story, unfortunately, is not very strange. But the rest of the story is, Brasheen was supposed to be put to death by injection at midnight. At nine o'clock, the guards went in to check on him, and he was breathing heavily. His pupils were dilated, and he was almost unconscious. They discovered that he had somehow taken an overdose of sedatives, evidently to commit suicide. And when they could not revive him, They rushed him to the hospital, had his stomach pumped, and brought him out of a near coma back to life. When he had fully recovered, they brought him back to the prison, strapped him to a gurney, and executed him. Now you say, why did they go through all that first? Because of a 1986 United States Supreme Court ruling that was biblical, It stated that the condemned has to be aware of his execution and he has to know why he is being executed. The ungodly are just like that man. They are going to die and they may think that when they die they will get a taste of eternal freedom. But they are going to be revived, going to be raised from the dead, just so they can face the judgment of God. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. There are two appointments that we all have that we must keep with God. One is our death. The other is our judgment. And that is why the second coming of Jesus is so vitally important to set us free. Now I heard a story of an old man who spent all of his life shining shoes for a living. He had an old worn-out Bible that he read over the years as he shined shoes. One day a customer walked in on him and saw this man reading the book of the Revelation. And he said, why do you read the book of the Revelation? You can't understand it. The old shoe shiner said, you're wrong, sir. I know exactly what the book of the Revelation means. The customer said, you uneducated fool. You think you know what the book of the Revelation means when Bible scholars have disagreed disagreed upon it for centuries? The shoeshiner said, yes, sir. I not only know what it means, I can tell you in five words. The customer said, five words? What are they? The old man said it means 
Jesus is going to win. When the umpire strikes back and Jesus splits those clouds and comes in splendor and majesty and glory and victory, the question is, are you going to be on the winning side? You know, as we leave here this morning and re-enter the world, keep an eye toward the heaven with expectancy. For behold, he comes riding on the clouds, shining like the sun at the trumpet call. If you've noticed, I always close by saying, see you next week. So today, this morning, I will say, see you next week. Maybe. Amen. Love you.